I'm Rachel. And this is Unassigned Reading. Where we discuss the books you're never going to talk about in English class. Right. YA, sci-fi, fantasy, and all the other genres you read for fun. Obviously, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. So many spoilers. And this week, it's serious business. Oh, no. Seriously, we don't want you to be unprepared. And if you couldn't already tell from the serious puns, or the episode title, we're talking about Prisoner of Azkaban this week. And it's seriously your turn to do the 60-second recap. One, two, three, go. Oh my gosh. Okay, Harry's back at Privet Drive. He accidentally blows up his aunt when she insults his father. He runs away because he thinks he's going to get expelled or, like, sent to Azkaban prison. But then the minister and everybody else is actually just really happy to see that he's safe because Sirius Black, this prisoner, escaped from Azkaban and turns out he's after him. Because of this, they also send to mentors, the guards of Azkaban prison, to guard Hogwarts. Dumbledore's really not chill about it. Also, Harry reacts really bad- badly to them and, like, passes out and hears his parents being killed by Voldemort and stuff. But the new defense against the dark arts teacher, Lupin, helps him learn how to repel them with the Patronus charm. Uh, also, Harry learns that Sirius Black actually was friends with his parents and betrayed them and is the reason that they're dead. Um, Ron's rat Scabbers runs away. Ron chases after him to try and get him back. This big black dog that Harry's been seeing around the grounds takes Ron and drags him under the Whomping Willow to the Shrieking Track. Obviously, Harry and Hermione follow, and they find out that the big black dog is actually Sirius Black. Then um, Lupin shows up. Hermione accuses him of being evil, helping Sirius, and also a werewolf. Well, one out of three ain't too bad Hermione Stop. and no Stop, <laughs> I really you know I thought you were gonna get it you were talking so fast at the beginning I was thinking boy I hope no one listens to this faster than like <laughs> one time speed because you will be un- ununderstandable no Not, yeah yeah um, but my no. my heart is going a mile a minute <laughs> I can tell you talked really fast those things stress me enough. out so much <laughs> you know 60 seconds might not be adequate. <laughs> it's really not. Book. Why didn't we give ourselves, like, two minutes? Oh, 60 no. seconds that's is not... insane. No, two minutes is... That's... <sighs> I, got, I got so close. I got to the point where we were just about to find out that Peter Pettigrew was actually the bad guy. And also Ron's rat. I was so... Yeah, I, I had, like, two sentences to go, Sarah. And I would have gotten there. There's, like, a Peter Pettigrew is the one that actually killed Harry's parents. In a roundabout way, the same way Sirius Black would have roundaboutly killed his Yeah, parents. because um, they switched secret keepers at the last minute and Peter gave them away. Which, and Peter told Voldemort. And then faked his death and let Sirius, you know, rot in Azkaban <laughs> for 12 years. Yeah, but like, more importantly, Peter was a scabbers the whole time. Yeah, Ron's because all of Harry's rat. parents' friends were guy and could turn into, well, except for Lupin, obviously, who's just a yeah. werewolf. And also, the issue with that is that it was a full moon this night that they're in the Shrieking Shack and trying to take on Peter Pettigrew, and Lupin hasn't taken his potion, and so when they're all trying to leave and like prove Sirius is innocent and show Peter Pettigrew to the minister and everybody Lupin turns and things Things do not go well because basically everybody gets hurt Peter Pettigrew runs away Sirius gets captured by you know the Dementors Harry and Hermione almost get killed by the Dementors but I mean so does Sirius because well so does Sirius too but you know they were like actually after him yeah (laughs) Harry and Hermione would have just been collateral damage but the good news is, turns out, we didn't, I didn't have time to mention this, Hermione's been acting sketchy all year and, like, way too busy and stressed, like the little perfectionist that she is. Turns out she's been going to all her classes because she has a time turner, which lets her go back in time, and Dumbledore comes up and is basically like, hey, I believe Sirius, and <laughs> you should go back in time and save him like the responsible adult he is. So they do. They go back in time. They rescue Buckbeak, the hippogriff, 
who is scheduled for execution, another thing that got left out of my summary, because there just wasn't time. And they rescue Buckbeak, and then ride on his back up to the tower where Sirius is being held to get him out of the tower and help him escape, and then everything turns out okay except for the fact that Pettigrew still escaped and is going back to help Voldemort. Yeah, that's not so great. That's not so great. But that's pretty that's pretty much the key points. Yeah, you you did pretty well this time. You got close. It wasn't awful. If I if I'd had 30 more seconds, I would have made it. Right, but that's why you didn't have 30 more seconds. Well, yeah, so. I understand that. <laughs> okay, so now that we've got our recap, let's talk about sort of the finer points. Yeah. Sure, let's dig into it. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is some of the new magical creatures that we are seeing in this book. In particular, I wanted to talk about Bogarts, Dementors, and werewolves, and sort of the ways I see them doing some similar things, particularly how they're kind of working, I think, potentially as metaphor in this book. Yes. One of the things, we've touched on this briefly before, I think, in our very first episode, is we don't get a whole lot of representation in the Harry Potter books. This is something that I think is pretty well known among Harry Potter fans. It's one of the, I think, things that has become a more major complaint. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't see like actual representation kind of really like across the board that we see, you know, a few characters of color, but we don't really see, you know, any LGBTQ characters. I know we've got Dumbledore, but that's not actually mentioned anywhere in the text. So that doesn't really count as representation. And we don't also have any disabled characters, like at all that I can think of. Can you think of any? Um, Mad-Eye Moody. Yeah, Mad-Eye Moody. Yeah. But beyond that, we just, we don't see very much. You know, we don't, we don't have very much visible or invisible disabilities, chronic illnesses or conditions, mental illness, so on. We do have some of that later, but not in maybe the way you would typically think, because we do learn more about Neville's parents later. That's true. And I think something there. That's true. So we get a very small amount, but not very much. No. It's not something that's very prominent in the books. And so I think what we see instead of that actual textual representation is we see some of these things represented through metaphor, which is actually a pretty common thing in the Harry Potter series. We see a lot of sort of the big serious issues of our world represented as metaphor. Talked about this some in the last episode about um, sort of the whole mud blood thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and of course, you know, I think there are some people that would maybe argue that in the case of disability, that the reason you don't really see a lot of diversity on that front in the Harry Potter series is that like there's magic and magic can cure everything or whatever. But I don't think that's actually a very positive or supportive message necessarily. But that's kind of beside the point of what I'm making today. So anyway. to the point of Dementors, Bogarts, and Werewolves. So I think the place that we do sort of see, not representation, but sort of an idea of these things is through these magical creatures instead. And like the obvious one is Dementors. I think most people know about that one, really. It's something that J.K. Rowling, I know I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what you're talking about. I know about the werewolf thing. I don't know about a Dementor thing. Oh my gosh. Okay. I figured that this was something that like everyone knew. No, I've never 
her the only one I know about is the wearable thing. I don't know anything about like Dementors being a metaphor for something. Oh my gosh! Lighten. Okay, <laughs> I thought werewolves was my biggest stretch. So this makes me no, so happy. No, she's like that you talked about the werewolf this. thing. I've never heard about the Dementor. Oh wow! Thing. Okay, I haven't even heard that. We'll get to that. You can add some details there. Okay, okay. so <laughs> well, we'll start with Dementors because that's the one that I kind of knew the most about going into. Is J.K. Rowling has talked a bit before about how Dementors were kind of an intentional metaphor for depression. Oh. I know, she, yeah, she's talked about, you huh. know, her own struggles with depression, I think particularly in the years before she really started writing Harry Potter, because, you know, she was having a lot of struggles in her life and just really wasn't doing well. And it's really, if you look at the, you know, the similarities between the two, it really does make sense because they're described as you know, sucking all of the happiness and hope out of a person, leaving them feeling numb and hopeless. And uh, at one point, Lupin even explains that the Patronus is a kind of positive force, a projection of the very things that the Dementor feeds upon, hope, happiness, the desire to survive, which really does kind of sound similar to depression. Yeah. yeah. And so we're definitely, I think, seeing a representation there of that and, you know, the fact that it affects Harry so much more and he's been through all of these difficulties in his life, the way they talk about it, that it's not his fault and that it's just this thing that happens sometimes. And then the second one that I hadn't really noticed before until I was doing this reread, but I thought was possibly another interesting parallel to make is the Bogarts, Mm -hmm. because they are this other kind of dark magical creature that we're seeing in this book that works on fear. I don't think this was necessarily as intentional as the Dementors. The Dementors were that was a very intentional metaphor on Rowling's part she wanted to present that as a metaphor for depression but Bogart's I think could be seen as a representation of anxiety because you know they play on your worst fears they manifest themselves differently to everyone they like you know dark dank places and they hide away and I also think it's telling that you know the remedies against them are hope and happy memories and laughter and all of these sort of good and positive things and obviously of course I'm not saying those things cure mental illness in real life, but I just think it's sort of interesting that there are those threads there connecting those ideas. Okay, yeah, I see that. I'd never noticed it before, but yeah. Yeah, and I had no idea about the Dementor thing. That is news to me. (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea. I totally expected you to know that one. And so then we have Lupin, and clearly, I guess you had already heard some things about this. I was kind of drawing this connection myself because I had never heard her say anything about this being a sort of an intentional parallel. I, I saw a very intentional parallel, and I think this is pretty obvious, as Lupin being representative of kind of any minority because he's very much being stigmatized. There's a lot of prejudice against werewolves. They talk a lot about how you know, he has trouble finding work and that, you know, that he doesn't look very well taken care of just because he doesn't have the means to do so. And because people don't like werewolves, they don't want anything to do with them. They think they're dangerous and dirty. And and so I definitely thought that could be representative of pretty much any minority that people would discriminate against. They kind of have to hide this part of themselves in order to not be ostracized. But I think in the context of this discussion, we could also see it as representative of a disability since he has to take a special potion to control his condition and because people you know if they knew then view him as less than and potentially unqualified and dangerous and all this other stuff that you know isn't entirely true i mean he is like a little dangerous in the context of the story since werewolves 
are kind of dangerous. And we know that it's been impossible for him to find a job, and if he's found out, and when he's found out, he's essentially forced out of Hogwarts. And so, yeah, I don't think it's this necessarily, like, a perfect metaphor, very, but I think it's definitely very representative it's very of, discrimin- of discrimination. You found other metaphors, but you've sort of missed the one uh, that is sort of known. So I guess I get to enlighten you here. So what J.K. Rowling has said, and you see this pop up in the news every once in a while, is like new information, but werewolves are a stand-in for blood-borne illnesses, particularly AIDS and HIV. Oh my gosh. <laughs> as, soon as, you, as soon as you said that, I was thinking... It, it, like, smacked me across the face. Yeah, so you sort of I was danced like, around oh, it. He was, he was bitten, he got this it's, disease it's that everyone... It's born, it's passed by a bite. ...is, like, very scared of. Wow. Past person. You're totally person. right. So I, I sort of danced around that. I you got did. the, like, got gist close. of it without you getting the specifics. You just didn't make the final jump. Uh, but, yeah, that's sort wow. of one that she's talked about. Um, and, and, that, and that makes a lot of sense to me, because, like I said, I saw... I was obviously going a particular route here, but I saw parallels to a lot of other minorities as well, particularly LGBTQ people and the discrimination they face. Yeah, so all related, but like in particular, sort of a reference to AIDS and HIV. Yeah, wow. That totally so makes sense. We both learned something here. Yeah, look at us. We both we both uh, had somehow missed very well-known, yeah. <laughs> potentially Harry Potter um, facts. There's just so many. There's so many details in Harry Potter. It's easy to miss something. Yeah, it's impossible to get all of them. So the next thing I wanted to bring up is fatal flaws. Because in a lot of ways, the Harry Potter series is, you know, it's a hero's journey. Yeah, that's very told true. Told in over seven books, but it has like a lot of these classic archetypes. And one of those is a fatal flaw. And I think all three of the main characters, Ron, Harry, and Hermione, have a fatal flaw. And I kind of think, particularly for Ron, but for all three of them, this is the book where their fatal flaws start to really make an appearance. Ron's fatal flaw, and this is the one that I think is most clear in this book, is his desire to have the spotlight on him. Mm. He wants attention. You know, even in the first book, like what he sees is him being head boy and winning the Quidditch Cup in the Mirror of Erised. And he wants have attention and in this book when Sirius Black shows up in their dormitory and slashes his curtains he you know is retelling the story and like playing it up and basking in the attention and it's not necessarily a terrible thing in this book like it doesn't have any negative consequences in this book but the same thing is going to have very negative consequences later for all of them that this is Ron's thing so that one I think is really really clear and it's sort of I think there are hints of it earlier on but this is where you're like oh this is gonna come back again and again and it's going to hurt all of them yeah yeah we do see a little bit of it in this one and then for Harry I think is reckless is maybe the word I'd use for it he doesn't think through the consequences a lot of his actions. One in particular here is him sneaking off to Hogsmeade. Hogsmeade, yeah. Especially like after Ron and Harry aren't talking to Hermione and, you know, he throws yeah. mud at Malfoy and Snape catches him and it's a big thing. He loses the Marauder's Map over the incident. And his invisibility cloak. Yes. So that's going to continue to be a thing we see from Harry is making mm. these choices that have negative consequences because he didn't consider what could happen. Yeah. Very in the moment. I think that's kind of apparent in all the books because Harry is the main character so we see his flaws earlier. This is just sort of like drilling that one home. And then yeah. Hermione, and I think this one may be the one you might disagree with me on, and it's maybe the most subtle, but I think for Hermione, it's spreading herself too thin. 
Uh, yeah, I could see that. Doing too much. And I mean, nothing's more doing too much than having to have a time travel device to go to all of your classes. <laughs> I mean, really, though. Um, and like on top of that, which is by itself would already be the definition of spreading yourself too thin. She's helping Hagrid with his Buckbeak case to try and save Buckbeak. She's yeah. um, still, for most of the book, like doing adventures with Harry and Ron, you know, studying for all of these classes because she's only using the time turner to go to class, not to study for the classes so she's you know barely sleeping for studying yeah just definitely spreading herself too thin and i think we're gonna see that a lot where she tries to do too much yeah yeah i i don't know i had a little trouble with hermione in particular just because i was very much going with the original definition by way of aristotle of Mm -hmm. tragic flaw which is you know an error in judgment that leads to the hero's downfall and honestly, I, I thought of a few, and spreading herself too thin is kind of along the lines of what, of what I was thinking of. My first inclination was her perfectionism. But then I thought, you know, it doesn't really lead to her downfall at any point, at least that I could think of. Yeah, It certainly leads to some mistakes, but yeah, I, I couldn't really think of that. I could see a few more things that I thought of with Ron and Harry. With Ron, I really like your thoughts. I thought that was great and kind of similar to some of what I was thinking, but some of what I thought of for Ron was his tendency to be very emotionally driven and Mm -hmm. also his tendency not to look at the bigger picture and sort of to act without thinking of the long-term consequences, which I think is kind of similar to what you're saying because it's kind of the reason he fights with Hermione in this book because he's not really considering the fact that like Scabbers has already been sick and obviously Hermione's struggling with some stuff and also Kat's obviously chase after rats it's also kind of the reason he fights with harry in the next book also because he wants to be in the limelight but again he's not really thinking about the bigger picture here yeah and of course the biggest i would say mistake that ron ever makes leaving harry and hermione in the seventh book is very much driven by those same things yeah and with harry the one i came up with was actually a little bit different although again i liked yours i thought for harry the one I came up with was potentially not trusting people and particularly not trusting authority figures or or people who are trying to tell him like what's best and the two big examples I could think of for that for a few of the biggest mistakes he makes in this series are in book five when he doesn't trust that Snape will tell the rest of the order and because of that you know he puts all his friends in danger and Sirius of course spoiler alert dies and then again in book six when Hermione warns him against trusting the notes in the half-blood prince's book and then Harry uses one of the spells he doesn't recognize on Malfoy and nearly kills him yeah which is honestly one of the darkest points in the book I would say when you see the hero doing something that terrible even unintentionally yeah doing what is clearly like dark magic Right, exactly. So that was a pretty big thing. But yeah, I really like your analysis of those. I think that's really good. And I think it's interesting to think about how some of their major flaws are starting to to show up now. Yeah, because those are going to play a bigger and bigger role as we go through the series. Yeah. Another thing I think we have to touch on briefly when we're talking about Prisoner of Azkaban is time travel. Yes. It's kind of a major aspect of the book, even though we don't really know about it until later on. kind of breaks the whole series and they have to deal with it in book five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to that. (laughs) Because this is, you introduce this super powered item and then it's like, Oh no, we have to get rid of this. We're going to get there. Um, (laughs) Because that's a thing. So first of all, 
a little bit on some different views and theories of time travel. These aren't really necessarily the very scientific views of it, but in terms of thinking about like literature and the ways it shows up, there are a bunch of different ideas about how time travel might work. And so I'm going to go through some of the major ones that I can think of, and if you think of any others or disagree, feel free to jump in. But the first one is essentially a fixed timeline where even though you think you're changing things, it's just really the way things always were. Like it was always mm-hmm. going to turn out that way. So that's the fixed timeline. Then the second one we have is where even the smallest changes can make a difference. So that's kind of like the butterfly effect. Right. Number three, I would say, would be where any changes to the timeline self-correct themselves. So you can't mm-hmm. really change the timeline. Kind of like number one, but a, a slightly different take on it. And then number four is where changing the timeline in any way would result in a new divergent timeline created from the point of change. Yes. So kind of where it creates alternate universes almost. Yeah. So yeah, I think those are those are the four, I would say. I just want to mention one thing I really like about time travel is that it can be science fiction and it can be fantasy depending on yeah. which way it's implemented. And I kind of love that about time travel. Time um, travel is awesome and I love it and I love really all the different ways you can include it. I think they all have merits and interesting things about them, but it can really derail things. I think it's very tricky to do and very tricky to deal with. And again, we're going to talk some more about that because, yeah, it it messes some things up a little bit. You have to, like, into your time travel system, you have to build in a lot of problems with it so that it isn't too powerful. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, I would definitely say, let's see if you agree with me, that we're probably dealing with time travel option one, the fixed timeline. for sure. As it is presented here where, you know, the changes aren't really changes because interference was always going to happen. And the reason I say this is because we don't have any evidence to the contrary. You know, we hear the axe swinging when we think they're executing Buckbeak, but it turns out that was just when they hit the fence. And because there's no evidence that, you know, before Harry and Hermione time travel that anything different happened in the timeline, then we have to assume that it was always going to happen that way. Right. Now, I will say... That that's only if we completely don't take Cursed Child into consideration. Yeah. um, So you're just going to have to go along the ride here with me and assume, even though that technically Cursed Child is canon, that we're just not considering that. Because obviously, if we go with that, then we're not dealing with a fixed timeline because Albus Severus and Scorpius Malfoy just, like, screw up the timeline in so many ways before it gets fixed. I would almost say basically how this might work is... For short time travel, it's fixed. But if you go, like, the, the effect you have is, like, amplified yeah. the further back you go. And so because they've gone so far back, now they can actually that's, change things. That's a good way to try and make that make sense. Um, <laughs> it, it's complicated. It I think you're applying some logic there that may maybe wasn't applied very well to begin with, but I like it. There's a conflict there. And some the way good time meta-analysis. Tra- time travel happens here and the way time travel happens in Cursed Child. Right. It's... Exactly. I, I like yeah. your stance. My stance was just, let's take Cursed Child out of the equation for now. Which Agreed. I feel is just what we usually do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, speaking of, if Cursed Child was true and it's not a fixed timeline, how messed up would it be that these adults gave a 13-year-old witch, no matter how incredibly amazing she is, the capability to go back in time and completely change the timeline? That yeah. would be so messed up. Even if they trusted her not to, that would be insane. She's 13. Yeah. I mean, so. even if it's a fixed timeline, it's kind of insane. I mean, it's still kind of insane. Although, like, a great, a great plot classes. line. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. 
it's like, wild. Yeah. But yeah, right, like you kind of said in the beginning, this introduces some major problems and plot holes to this series, which, as we know, J.K. Rowling does eventually deal with because in book five, they destroy most or, well, well at the time we, we think, think they destroy all. all. But later on, thanks to Child, Child, we find out that um, it's only most. Yeah. Changes things again. Yeah. But it's kind of this question that we get after book three of, okay, well, if this all-powerful magical object that allows a person to go back in time exists, then let's see, why didn't, say, anybody go back and save the Potters? Or stop Voldemort's rise to power? Or even better, why didn't Voldemort, who by all accounts would not care about screwing up the timeline in any way, shape, or form, just get his hands on a time turner, go back in time, and kill Lily and James before they could even get married and have Harry? Yeah, it's the time turner becomes the answer to everything pretty quickly. Every problem in Harry Potter can be solved by a time turner, um, which is why they all get destroyed in the fifth book. And I think... A bit of the logic before the fifth book is that, oh, they're carefully regulated by the ministry so nobody can get their hands on them. But I don't know. That doesn't feel like a super strong reason. Well, and I think there is a good reason why no one used it to save the Potters because the Potters dying is what destroyed Voldemort. So, like, no one was going to undo that. Right, yes. And that that, was a noble sacrifice. Right. Um, Why it wasn't used for other things is more of a question. More questionable. Yeah. And on the subject of time travel, I did just have to bring up one little thing I noticed because I thought this was crazy. We'll see if you picked up on this too. But I've got to ask, in the scene when Harry and Hermione go back in time, did Dumbledore know before he sent them back that they were going to do that? Because in the scene after Buckbeak's attempted execution, after Buckbeak's escaped, Harry and Hermione have rescued him. Everyone's freaking out. And this is how the book describes Dumbledore's reaction. How extraordinary, said Dumbledore. There was a note of amusement in his voice. So, um, That sounds very much to me like a man who knew two kids were going to travel back in time so and rescue a hippogriff. My guess is that that is the moment he figures it out. That's my guess, because Dumbledore knows Hermione has a time-turner, and he knows how devoted Harry, Ron, and Hermione are to Hagrid. See, and that's kind of where I was going, too, but the thing is, that's still kind of wild, because what does he think? Does he think that they just went back in time to help their friend to rescue this creature that they really loved, not knowing the larger aspect of them trying to save Sirius? Because he doesn't even know Sirius is innocent yet. Yeah. So it's still kind of wild that he'd just be like, oh, chill. Okay, they're misusing this powerful magical artifact. Yeah, I mean... And potentially messing things up, you know? I think that's kind of Dumbledore's attitude towards powerful magical objects. Like, uh, He is pretty chill about sending children to do extremely dangerous things. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I do think... Because I don't... I don't know, maybe... I don't know how he could have known before that moment. I think that is most likely the moment where he figures it out. That's kind of what I was thinking, too. It's also... Other things are possible, but they're just, like, not, like, referenced in any way in the book. So I can't really say, oh, maybe he saw them in the forest while they were hiding. And, you know, it's unlikely. I think... And he might not have even known it was a time-turner at that point. He may have thought, like, oh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione came out here... They hid in the woods, waited until we saw Buckbeak, and then released him. Like, he didn't even mm. have to know that the Time Turner was true. involved at that That's point. That's true. That's plausible. Uh, he might have thought that they were just out there and, like, had planned this. Plausible. I just thought that that was a really funny line. So I think there's one more thing we want to talk about before we wrap up. And I kind of want to talk about this, like, larger theme throughout Harry Potter. It's the idea that there are fates worse than death. Hmm. Yeah. Because Harry Potter, like, talks about death a lot because Voldemort's whole deal is he wants to escape death. That is Voldemort's 
goal. And so he does things that people consider like horrifying. and like- Right, and they, they introduce that idea very early on because in the first book, we have them talking about drinking unicorn blood. Right. You know, doing terrible, terrible things to avoid death that like maybe are worse than death itself and this book I think is the first time we hit that very head-on though and not just in relation to Voldemort but the Dementor's kiss right which like Harry is like oh will they kill him he's talking to Lupin about Sirius and Sirius is like no they're gonna do something much worse than that probably Lupin said that not Sirius Lupin said that in reference to Sirius yeah that's why Sirius said it (laughs) that's what I was trying to (laughs) Okay. Harry probably would have freaked out if Sirius showed up. Probably would have freaked out a little. Um, we don't talk about it a lot in this book because Voldemort doesn't appear in this book. This is the only one that isn't Voldemort-centric. Yeah. And he's sort of adjacent. He's still with the Peter Pettigrew thing. But he has no... He's not acting in any way in this book. But we still sort of hit on this topic of fate's worse than death, which I think all wraps up to this idea of Voldemort's obsession with death and avoiding it. And also what Harry does at the end, which is things that are more important than death, maybe. He's willing to sacrifice himself to destroy Voldemort. Right. And I think that's a really key theme throughout all of Harry Potter is yeah. things that are worth dying for and things that are worse than death and sort of all of this stuff. For sure. This is going to be a whole series wide things. So there's no really like conclusion to it here. It just sort of comes up and I thought it was worth mentioning at this point. Yeah. I think actually one other major series theme that shows up in this book is the idea of hope triumphing over fear. Mm, yes. Because we see sort of in Harry's whole subplot about the Dementors and learning to produce a Patronus and his greatest fear being fear itself. The whole thing with Sirius being able to stay sane in Azkaban because he knew that he was innocent, Hermione and Harry being able to save Sirius. Sort of all of those things, I think, have this undercurrent of hope and persistence being able to triumph over fear. Yeah, I I definitely think that comes up here, and we'll see that throughout the whole series, too. Yeah. Well, I think that covers it. Which means it's time to discuss the Harry Sass and Inkstometer. The most important part of the show. Obviously. So I guess we will start with the Harry Sassometer. Yes, I think we should. So how sassy do you think Harry was? Okay, we're start we're starting to see some sass. We're still not peak Harry Sass, but I would no. say ooh, I don't know. I'd give it like a three. Maybe? I, I was going to go four. Three or four, somewhere around there. Yeah. Still a little less of, than middle. Yeah, he's not he's not quite there yet, but he's going to get there soon. Right, because we've, got, we've got a couple of good lines. We've got the, I don't go looking for trouble, trouble usually finds me. Mm-hmm. That's sort of edging on sassy. And then some actual full-on sass with Malfoy on the Quidditch pitch, when he tells Malfoy that it's a pity you can't attach an extra arm to your broom, then it could catch the snitch for you. He has some moments. Um, yeah, that's some not- good sass he's getting there he's getting there and now for the angstometer i know you're gonna disagree with me on this because you always do mm-hmm. i'm gonna give it a four i think you are insane i'm gonna give it a six. <laughs> oh, what this is the first time you've gone higher than me this whole book is him like agonizing over his parents and like listening to them die Ooh, you're right you're right and, okay like, i'm five wanting five. to kill Sirius. like i thought you were gonna come in and be like it's a two are you kidding no no it is not a four i think it's okay a six. No, i think you're right I'm, i'll agree i think i'll give five. it a five i'll, I'll give it a five no you can you can go six no i'm, I'm just so overjoyed that like, you're going <laughs> higher than me i'm just not offended by a five i was a little offended that you would give it a four <laughs> 
I was maybe hedging my bets a little because I thought you were going to give it a two. No, I think like four or five, somewhere around there. Because like you said, this is, we're getting pretty dark now. Harry, the one that stood out to me, hearing his parents die, I kind of hadn't been thinking about that one quite as much. Like, but the Dementor is obviously a huge thing. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. Um, but the big one that stood out to me is Harry straight up is ready to murder someone. And yeah. in fact, there's one part, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, when he's uh, preparing to kill Sirius in... The Shrieking Jack, which, by the way, I don't think he would have actually done. We see him hesitate. Yeah. I'm not saying that Harry's incapable of killing, because we definitely see him do some pretty violent stuff later, but I don't think he would have done it here. But he literally is thinking to himself, and he, he goes, so what if he had to kill the cat, too? It was in league with Black. It was prepared to die trying to protect Black. That wasn't Harry's business. Like, he's yeah, straight up thinking, I could kill a cat. Yeah. It's bad. And I will say, like, it's not he, great. even if Harry had, like, tried it, we... What we learn about the very dark curses later, including the one I imagine he was about to attempt, is that intention is vital. Yeah, he probably couldn't have done it. Yeah, I'm not sure that he could have. He maybe he was very angry, but I'm I'm not sure. You have to have yeah. like a. We're definitely we're definitely starting to see some serious angst here. Yes, and that was an actual unintentional serious pun. So I apologize. <laughs> I don't apologize. Yeah, so I think that's it for our sass and angstometers. And I'm all out of serious puns. So we hope you'll join us again next month for a discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The trio is really going to be feeling the heat this time. You could say they're out of the goblet and into the fire. Oh boy. <laughs> Thanks to Sahara Sky for the use of our theme song, Never Long Time Goes By, from the album Escapism. And thanks for listening. You can get in touch with us by tweeting at unassignedpod over on Twitter or emailing us at unassignedreadingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. It makes a really big difference, and we will be eternally grateful. We'll be back on Friday, July 13th. Appropriate. <laughs> right? We'll be back Friday, July 13th with another episode of Book Talk, and our discussion of The Goblet of Fire will be out on the last Friday of July, which is the 27th. And in the meantime, we leave you with these words of wisdom. Don't let the muggles get you down. Mm-hmm.